Scott, be quiet for a minute. What I want to say is it's perfectly defensible argument to argue that there is nothing that Notley could have done. She could add a brilliant narrative that explained her policies better than Kenny and not change the, the results by one percentage point in the popular vote. That is a defensible argument. I, I agree with you. It's not, that's not my argument, though. Or arguing against that is not my argument. What I'm arguing is simply that she didn't have a narrative and, and didn't do a good job selling her policy at any point in her government. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. I'm Scott Schmidt. I'm here alongside my good friend and co-host, Jeremy Appel. Jeremy? How are you doing today, buddy? Not too bad. I uh, I got cat a few days ago. Uh, I saw it. It's cute. Bird. Yeah, he's so scared of me um, right now. Though he, he like the first day he just get under my couch and like wouldn't come out. Now he's at least running around the apartment. And whenever I approach him, he like runs to the other part of the apartment. But we're working on it. It's, it'll, yeah, cats are funny that way. You didn't get a kitten. You got an actual cat, right? So, no, he, he's a kitten. Four months. Oh, four months. Okay. So, yeah, he's, you got some, you got a little bit of chemistry to build, but it'll come and then the cat won't leave you alone. It'll be awesome. So, yeah. I mean, eventually, really he's, cute. eventually he's going to realize, hey, <laughs> this is it. Like, if he wants companionship, it's you. Yeah. Who's, who's this guy <laughs> that keeps giving me food? Yeah, eventually he's going to be like, it's under this bed or that guy. So I guess I'm going to go hang out with him. That's how all my pets learn to love me. It's okay. It's, it's the best. Mo Cranker, our editor, producer, all the good things in between. He's just gotten back from a week-long camping trip with a lady. And he says it's, it was really, really fun. How, how are you doing, bud? I'm doing pretty well, adjusting to life back in the city. Uh, a lot of lifted trucks in Medicine Hat. You're kidding. Yeah, they're you're kidding. really, really ugly. Now, you don't really, you're not like overly plugged in in general, but did you enjoy, you guys tossed your cell phones away for the week, right? Like you both basically just like turned the world off. How was that? Yeah, we had an airplane mode only rule on our phones and it was pretty amazing to not look at anything ever oh you just looked at each other and the mountains oh you guys are adorable we're not gonna we i won't we won't get into that let's here. not <laughs> but you guys are okay anyway so um last couple of weeks with being summer and uh you know some of our guests just drop out at like 9 a.m for like grocery store trips and such we've had to do a few episodes where it's pretty much just us bantering and swearing a lot I've noticed as I've listened back I've been pretty mouthy lately so we're pleased to be back into our usual format here we've uh, finally tracked down uh, the infamous and the uh, evasive Markham Hislop who is the man uh, behind the I want to say what's the word here to describe energy media because 
energy media is like this place where you go and find like actual facts about energy, but he doesn't have a lot of friends in the energy industry anymore because of that. So we're going to talk a lot about that today. But uh, in line with the Forgotten Corners mantra for bringing on guests that don't make the United Conservative Christmas list, we are pleased to welcome Markham Hislop to the show this week. If you don't know Markham, he is the man behind Energy Media, an online independent outlet focused on journalism done right with an all-day, everyday focus on the future of energy. If you do know Markham, you'll know he is a prideful thorn in the side of those who would skirt the truth when it comes to the current state of energy and the pressing need for transition away from fossil fuels. And of course, that means he's not very well liked by Alberta's current government. Markham joins us today for what will no doubt be a spirited conversation about Alberta's energy ministry and the future that is both here and on the way. And if we're lucky, he's going to hurl some insults at Jeremy that will no doubt be fun to listen to. So we're excited for that. Markham, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Uh, pleasure to be here and uh, really looking forward to this. Now, you're usually the guy on the other side of these things. So are you, are you uh, used to being the subject of the interview are you excited to be that guy today because you know i i actually do a lot of radio so i i am the interviewee uh fairly regularly so you know over the years i've gotten i think not too bad at it so hopefully i'll be moderately entertaining that's my promise to you. now in the with all these other interviews that you've done how many of them make you tell their life story in 10 minutes or less to start Nobody cares. You're the other person. Ah, I beg we, to differ, we my care. On, we on, care. On Forgotten Corner, we always make a That's point. right. Care. Of that's course. Our, that's our brains. Caring Jeremy's is our right. brain. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's correct. Hey, listen. If people are going to listen to somebody uh, talk for an hour, like somehow they do when we show up for this thing, we, we want them to know who they're talking to. And... Uh, um, you're an interesting guy. You have your, uh, you have a, a lot on the go. You don't live in Alberta, but you like are really, uh, kind of from the heart of Alberta in a lot of ways. So we're going to get into that. So Markham, tell us your life story. Now you, you gave yourself away earlier by telling us that you were 61 years old. Pre 61, where were you born and raised? Oh my goodness, we're going to go back to the cradle. Well, you don't uh, got to tell us like who taught you in kindergarten, but you know. No, but we we we're, we're going to ask like who who like traumatized you and like <laughs> who hurt you, Markham? Oh, it's a long list, but <laughs> who broke your heart? <laughs> tell us about all your exes. Sure. Any any anybody anybody who follows my Twitter feed knows, you know, that I'm I'm basically neurotic and traumatized. So anyway, I'm I'm a prairie boy. I'm uh, I spent you know 50 years of of my life on the prairies. I, I born in uh, Saskatoon, and uh, my family moved to Manitoba, northern Manitoba, when I was uh, when I was five. So that'd be 1964 for all of you who can can't add. And he worked for Manitoba Hydro. He was a mechanic actually. He was a farm boy, and you know became a mechanic, and then he moved. He got on with Manitoba Hydro, and we lived in Thompson uh, till. Uh, 1971, and then moved to a little town called Gillum, which many of your listeners will recall from last year, when two BC murderers, we'll call them. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, they killed... Alleged, alleged murderers. Yeah. Mm, they're pretty... They fled, they fled to, to northern Manitoba, to a little town called Gillum. It's about 1,500 
uh, people, and it's uh, about 1,100 kilometers north of Winnipeg, just south of Churchill, uh, when that's on the Nelson River, where, where Manitoba Hydro builds all its dams, and where I spent 1971 to 1979, all my you know formative teen years, and uh, you know it was winter nine months of the year, so we played played a lot of hockey and played baseball in the summer, and and um, got the hell out of there, uh, you know, shortly after after high school. So went to the the University of well, I, I spent a year in Alberta before going to the University of Saskatchewan in 1979 and got a, a BA in, in history. And then now, uh, now you're skipping because you started as an English major. Now, why would you start? Why did you pick English to start like as a major? And then why were you like, why? Because you, you were kind of like, why am I doing this? And then switch to history. You know, as, as a kid, I mean, you guys, you know, did a, I'm being interviewed by a couple of writers here. So you appreciate this, but you know what it's like when you're growing up and you're you're reading a lot and and uh, you imagine you know that you're telling those stories and how you'd like to be a writer and and so how do you learn how to be a writer? Well, you go to university and study English lit, right? Wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, mm. I, I was terrible at it. I got you know my first couple of classes, I got C's and it was a real eye opener. I got to tell you, and the one class I actually did well on was history. So I decided that I would switch majors and pick up a, a history degree with a minor in English Lit. And then um, went to grad school at the U of S in history. And my master's thesis was all about the transition um, from horse-drawn technology in, in Saskatchewan agriculture from 19, sorry, the transition from horse-drawn technology to power farming in Saskatchewan 1900 to 1930. A scintillating topic, I have to tell you. And, but it laid the foundation for the work I'm doing in, totally. in energy because it's all about uh, uh, new, the introduction of new technology, the adoption of, you know, uh, going Absolutely. From, from horses and uh, steam tractors to to small uh, gas tractors and combines and revolutionized uh, Canadian agriculture, Saskatchewan agriculture, and the all of the literature and the, the basic principles uh, from my that thesis uh, are applicable to what I do in my energy journalism. So that was a very good training. But at the same time, I turned my, uh, my thesis research into a column for the Western producer and from, I think it was 85, 86, or 86, 87, somewhere in around there. I, I said two years. The column was called Farm Tech and Times. I'm sure somewhere you might be able to Google and find. Oh, you know, we should have had that ready. Could have read some old Markham stuff. Yeah, see, see what problematic stuff he said. That's right. And cancel you. That's right. We, mode, we need our editor to do better research on our guests before they come on. He came and let you see that look. Just kidding. Go ahead. Exactly. Well, anyway, I mean, the, the um, uh, you know, that gave me my first introduction. It wasn't really journalism, but at least, you know, writing and for a, writing for a, a paper. And it's journalism. Yeah, okay, sure. Call, columnists are journalists. They, they may not, a lot of them aren't good journalists, but um, they're just There's a podcast that we've done already. I don't. I don't doubt that for a moment. I I read your columns, so you know. 
Burn. Wow. Hey, listen. <laughs> I like we, we, we know we're big time, Markham. Are you kidding? Come on. <laughs> in, in my circles, the Medicine Hat News is, uh, is the, um, uh, the poster child for small town uh, quality journalism. I mean, you guys, there aren't many newspapers anymore like the news. And you yes. guys do a really great job. So uh, kudos to you. And oh, stop it. Very, no, 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 no. Well, I, like, I'm not going to fluff you that much. Uh, <laughs> That's true. I was like, I was waiting for the insults today. Yeah, wow. where, where's the swears? <laughs> Hang on a second. We've got an hour. We have plenty of time. That's true. But uh, in, in, 80, in 88, I moved up to Prince Albert, from Saskatoon to Prince Albert, and got on with the Prince Albert Daily Herald. They happened to have a, a job open up, uh, the fifth reporter. Can you believe this? Like, you know, PA was 25, 30,000 people, which is kind of the same size as Medicine Hat. Yeah, five reporters. Yeah, five five reporters. And, and like, that's general news reporters. They also had yeah. a couple of sports guys and, you know, a copy editor and, and so on. So, I mean, it was a happening little newsroom. And we did really good work. I mean, uh, you know, some of the people that I worked with went on to become well-known reporters in Saskatchewan. And it was quality stuff. Uh, and that's where I where I learned the biz as it were. Sure. And um, uh, after a while, I, you know, I was a single dad at that point. It's what took me up to PA and I had two small children and I couldn't, uh, you know, and you will appreciate this. Uh, it was very difficult raising two children on a reporter's salary. <laughs> what are you talking about? Why would I appreciate that? As yeah, I, Scott only has one child. That's right. <laughs> what? That's, he's a he's a strict <laughs> adherent to China's one child policy. That this is correct. Yeah, there is no room for two. Uh, you know, I think I I think I'm uh, connected, uh, Scott, with your wife now. She claims she has two children, but uh, a, yeah, right. Boom! A running joke in the household that is just not even remotely inaccurate. We know how you got into journalism. We, you basically had energy sort of in your blood growing up and these kinds of things. So um, what prompted you to make this decision to go independent and start Energy Media, this, this venture that is done a real, you've done really well with it, but it's, it isn't easy to just start an independent news source make that your primary income and make a living <laughs> well there's an understatement of the year um well let me tell you how that happened so we moved out to calgary in in 2000 and from 2003 to 2008 i was helping some friends uh i took a little break from communications and and the kind of stuff i was doing and and i helped um some friends market a um uh, oil field downhole oil field product you don't don't make me explain boronized production tubing to you it's it's even boring it's very boring uh but nevertheless I, I what i did was help set up their marketing and distribution network in in the united states and which is really funny because in 2003 when i met these guys i couldn't have told you how they got oil out of the ground i had no idea and so they they had to train me right from the you know the ground up and, but the, the one thing that I had going for me is I was utterly stupid and fearless. Uh, and so I started with them in August and, and around 
like September, October, they were saying, you know, we'd really like to get into that Permian Basin market down in West Texas. And I said, well, why, what's the problem? Well, you know, we only know one guy down there. We just don't know what to do. So being stupid and, you know, I just booked a ticket to Midland, Texas, flew down there, had dinner with the one guy they knew who was an engineer named Alan Means, lovely guy, and uh, enjoyed his company thoroughly. And over the next couple of years, you know, got to know people down there and, and created a distribution network for them, signed on some, some distributors and made friends with one of the, our distributors' best sales guys, hired him. And then I moved over and did the same thing in California for them for the three years after that. So that took me up to 2008. And you'll remember what happened, of course, in 2007 with the right. collapse of the uh, global financial right. system. So uh, I, had, I had told my friends, like, I'd give you five years. You know, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't a, a you know, life's ambition for me to work in the oil and gas industry. So the five years was up. The recession was on. I didn't know what the hell to do with myself. And uh, was kind of at loose ends that the summer of 2008. And somebody sent me uh, an email with a link to an early online uh, community, no, no, like a small town newspaper in Batavia, New York. I don't know how I, I think it was just an example they had run across. Sure. Run on WordPress, like really god awful looking thing. And the, the journalism wasn't great. And I looked at that and I said, hmm, I could do better than that. So I found somebody to make a WordPress site for me and I was putting together a business plan and I went to see a, another friend of mine who was running an advertising agency in Calgary. And I said, well, can you give me some input for a business plan? And he said, why would you do that? It's, this is really simple. Either if you can sell advertising, you have a, a news media business. And if you can't sell advertising, you don't. You don't. <laughs> Facts. So, you know, go write some stuff and... And then go sell some advertising to, you know, to sell, uh, put, you know, the, the padding around it. And, and if you can do it, you got a business. And so that's what I did. I went out and I, I sold a couple thousand dollars a month worth of advertising. And, and we started Southeast Calgary News in December of 2008. And uh, we did local stuff. We did kind of, not the kind of stuff you guys do. I mean, we covered, you know, AAA midget hockey we covered some baseball, a bunch of soccer. We covered politics. We covered business. We, I mean, this is whatever I was interested in. Sure. But we had a bit of an advantage. My my wife Joanne uh, is a uh, has a degree or sorry a diploma from Nate in television arts, and she, I think she started with Shaw Cable in '85, got her diploma, and then I met her in PA in '88 where she was a news shooter editor for the local CTV affiliate, PATV. And, and so uh, we had been doing, you know, video production for years. She joined me in 96 in my company and we'd been doing video production for years. So we had a little handy cam and, you know, this is 2008, 2009 and, and um, a Mac computer. She did the editing. I did the shooting and we did all kinds of, you know, cool stuff for that, for that time, stuff that's now commonplace. You know, we were kind of, I wouldn't say we were at the forefront. We didn't, but you know, we were early adopters of that approach to journalism, local journalism. 
and and we were building up quite a, a an audience and then we went citywide and called we changed the news to beacon news i had i had hurt my back in you know back in the 70s and so they operated on it in july of 2013 and uh, fixed you know did the old l5s1 spinal fusion and four months later my joanne and i were driving back from calgary and uh, it started to snow a little bit. And this lady who had bald summer tires on her car uh, spun out of control across the, 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 the line and hit us head on at 90 kilometers an hour. And so that basically, you know, undid all of the, the great surgery my uh, surgeon had done and, uh, and caused me all sorts of problems and ultimately led to the, the the failure of poor old Beacon News uh, because we just couldn't were, keep up. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it was anyway. Long story, but the short version is that the poor old Beacon News failed in uh, late 2014, and but we had already been doing some energy reporting. You know, like 2012, 2013, 2014, getting our our feet wet, and in 20 January of 2015, a couple of buddies getting back to the Boronides production tubing uh, company. Uh, a couple of those buddies, one from Texas and one from Calgary came and said, look, you know, we like what you did with, with Beacon News and we'd like you to do an energy version of that. We'll put up some money and uh, let's all partner up and, and do that. You do the journalism. And so that's, what, that's how, how energy uh, media got started and away we went. And so uh, we did, from at that point, we did almost exclusively. We did some little bit of American energy news, but a lot of it was Alberta. It was oil and gas stuff and pipelines and all of that. And while I had the five years that I'd spent in the industry, kind of you know learning it from the on on the ground stuff, I didn't know it from a, a policy point of view, and I didn't know it from the the, the, uh, the corporate side. And so I did what I always do, which is just spend a lot of time interview, doing interviews with experts and, and uh, put in my 10,000 hours, you know, as, uh, uh, as they say, as they say, to become an expert. Uh, and, I'm, and, I, and I don't proclaim to be an expert, actually. I, um, uh, mm -hmm. I interview experts. That, that's kind of our brand is uh, we, we interview energy economists and well, that's literally our brand, my friend. So you guess what? Yeah. Look, look around, my friend. You are the expert today. <laughs> Just stay the stay the fuck out of our lane. That's right, Markham. I I, I can't help but ask. Uh, do, do do you have any like journalistic influences? Like, who are are there any journalists that you sort of looked up to and sort of tried to emulate uh, throughout your career? That's a really good question, Jeremy. And and you know, you given given my vintage. You'd think it'd be something like Hunter Thompson or one of the you know better known Canadian journalists, but really what it was was the working journalists in Saskatchewan, and there were some really really top notch guys. Uh, uh, Garth Matiri probably the name means nothing to you. He now has a, a radio show on CBC out of Regina, I think. He's kind of my age, but back in the day, you know, Garth was when he was thirty. I think he had a law degree or something. And, he was a damn, damn good reporter. Like when Garth Materi or Mark Dufour or one of those CBC reporters broke a story, they did a good job and they got their facts straight and it was top-notch reporting. 
and that's kind of where I learned the learned the craft. Those are the people I I looked up to. It wasn't the it wasn't the uh, you know the household names that you read in the Globe and Mail or or saw on uh, CBC National. It was the guys I worked with who were just really good and and smart as a whip. And I I look today I look around the media landscape, and uh, uh, reporters like that, journalists like that, are uh, few and far between. Now. With energy media, which is you've done really well for it being only a few years old, like it's it's pretty well established. And one of the things that it's established is a reputation. And sometimes you said, like you've said to me in the past, like you've had certain people in politics or the industry that kind of blackball you or don't like you. And you kind of like you take this really straightforward approach to your website where it's like, hey, I'm going to report facts and that's going to be how this works. And sometimes those facts aren't going to be enjoyed by everyone. Is it as simple as that? Like, is that why you're so uh, cantankerous for them? Like why these people look at you with a little bit of disdain? Is it just simply because you're reporting things that they don't want you to report that are just true? Uh, yes and no. Uh, that's certainly why I got blackballed by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers during the 2019 Alberta election. So let me tell you that story. Happy to do that. You'll remember at that time, there was a lot of, you know, the foreign funded activist trope, you know, that part of the narrative. Of, yeah, uh, Jeremy and I are one. Uh, like, we, be, we both are foreign funded activists, as you've well known. So no. I, I, I am uh, funded by the Qatari <laughs> government. Um, since I've been laid off from Medicine Hat News, it's been kind of tough time. So the you gotta eat, Jeremy. Yeah. So the Emir of Qatar has been very generous and stepped up, and now I get paid uh, per tweet handsomely. Yeah, I might add. Sorry, so go ahead, Markham. But yes, we know all about foreign-funded activists. Jeremy, when you're, we're finished the podcast, if you could uh, share your contact there, uh, you know. He doesn't even tell us. It's bullshit. Absolutely. So you got blackballed by no, I, I get, I well, get hit directly, though. The story, the, story, the story is of interest because um, so the foreign-funded trope was going around, and, and the CEO, Tim McMillan, gave a speech at the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, and he was quoted as saying that, you know, Thank you very much, Jane Fonda. Thank you very much, Zipporah Berman. Because of your activism, tens of thousands of Alberta oil and gas workers are now unemployed. And, you know, he blamed. It's utter bullshit. Right. Absolutely that and why Jane? Absolutely not true. Not, you know, that, that activism that, and, and uh, by the way, I disagree with Zipporah Berman on a lot of things. Uh, but nevertheless, I support her right to, you know, her democratic and constitutional right to, to dissent and to disagree and to, and to uh, you know, act or to um, oppose uh, pipelines and the expansion of the oil sands. That, that's, you know, if you don't like what Zipporah says, make a better argument. You know, do a better job totally. of, convincing Canadians, of convincing Canadians of the rightness of your, of your argument. So anyway... Uh, I emailed the, the cap media people and I said, okay, well, look, I mean, this is demonstrably not true. I can get, and I quoted a bunch of, you know, statistics and, and, and showed in fact that it, you know, what he had said, Tim McMillan had said was incorrect. And I said, I want to interview Tim. I've interviewed him many times in the past. It's not like this was a, 
you know, I was, I was an accredited journalist with CAP and interviewed McMillan all the time. And they said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And, uh, you know, we, we reject your argument. And, uh, and, and I said, no, no, no. You cannot say things. You are the largest oil and gas lobbying agency uh, group in Canada. You have a tremendous amount of clout. You don't get to say inaccurate and wrong things in public and not, and not you know, account for them and explain where you got that information and, and explain your argument. You don't get to do that. And they came back and said, well, you know, Markham, uh, clearly you, uh, you uh, how did they put it? They something about, uh, you are you not have an agenda. <laughs> well, no, what they said was you are not being objective and therefore we're never going to talk to you again. Wow. And I, 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 I've, all, I've always noticed as a reporter, the people who complain the loudest about uh, your lack of objectivity are as a rule, the least objective people. So they put this pressure on you to sort of like fall in line and do it exactly our way or we won't talk to you. And you said, fuck that, obviously, and found a way to continue to report on energy and just go around them, obviously, right? I mean, it's not impossible to get the facts right without cap, right? There's no, uh, there's no requirement for energy journalists to be uh, cap stenographers. And with, with, our, with our focus on expert analysis, there are I mean, hundreds and hundreds of energy economists and engineers and scientists and researchers and other people who are happy to talk on the record. So we just didn't talk about CAP anymore. And, and, and but there's, it's more than that. I mean, you know, for instance, they, CAP put out its 2018 climate policy and it was a joke. It was an, it was an utter joke. And I sent that policy around to three economists, uh, several, two of them were in, uh, in uh, Alberta and one of them was in Ontario. And these are energy economists, climate economists, and they tore that thing apart and, and, and pointed out all of the inconsistencies and the, the things that didn't make sense or, the, you know, they were, CAP would be asking for you know, policies and regulations that were already in existence that the Notley government had put in. And it was just a, it was a dog's breakfast of nonsense. And, and, and I said so, and we, in fact, did a deep dive on it and quoted these economists extensively. So the in Alberta, you will very, very seldom see any kind of a, a journalist criticizing CAP. And right. I criticize them. I criticize them, their substance of their policy uh, recommendations and the substance of their positions over and over and over again. And I think the, the business with the, the thing that finally got me blackballed was really just the final straw from Cap's point of view. And frankly, after it was pretty clear that they were going, you know, the, the, the uh, Kenny, uh, the UCP were going to win. And it was also pretty clear that the Cap, uh, both the Board of Governors and the senior management, including McMillan, had turned that organization into a partisan, uh, uh, a partisan uh, organization. And, and trust me, I can't, uh, the information was given to me off the record, so I can't identify sure. who it was. Yeah. But I have talked to more than one senior oil and gas executive who have, have bemoaned the, uh, the uh, state of CAP at the moment and have said themselves that, that, the, that McMillan and the board have taken it, have made it partisan. 
what what is cap sort of uh organizational structure right like i know that the big oil companies are of course a key component of it but right it seems that there's a disconnect between their owners who you know we can you know talking about the ndp's climate leadership plan is of course whole other can of worms, but I mean, you had major oil and gas CEOs up there with uh, Rachel and Shannon uh, to at least ostensibly support their climate plan. But CAP, on the other hand, as, okay. as, as you say, is more of a partisan exercise. So what, 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 like, how are decisions made for CAP and what's their relationship to their membership? In order to answer that question, Jeremy, you need to go back and, and a lot, I did a lot of reporting on this. So for, in the fall of 2014, the uh, five uh, uh, oil sand CEOs and that'd be, you know, like Murray Edwards from CNRL and Steve Williams from Suncor and Lorraine Mitchell Moore from Shell and so on, met with five executive directors from environmental groups and they met in Calgary at a little at an Italian restaurant and the meeting had been called by the CEOs because they were sick and tired of being tarred and feathered by the environmentalists, and they were looking for peace in the valley. And uh, Dave Collier, who was the, the CEO of CAP and a longtime Shell executive, was tasked with the job of pulling this all together. He was the co he, he co-chaired the meeting, and Zipporah Berman was, at the request of the CEOs, the co-chair that represented the environmental groups. And so the first meeting was kind of get together. Is there, you know, who, who are these people? Nobody even from the two camps knew each other. And that kicked off a series of meetings that lasted until the fall of 2015, at which time the environmentalists and the CEOs basically cut a deal. And what they said was, uh, the CEO said, okay, uh, we will agree the 100 megaton oil sands emissions cap that came out of those meetings. That was not the government initiative. That came out of those meetings. They agreed to carbon pricing, both at the industrial level and at the provincial level. They agreed to cut methane emissions by 40 to 45%. Another thing that came out of, out of that, that, that's where it came from for the climate leadership plan. And in return, and this is the really key point that gets missed in all of this, the quid pro quo here is that the uh, oil sand CEOs got a commitment to no cap on production. Right. No cap on production. They could keep uh, increasing output, increasing supply, as long as they were acting on these other, supporting these other policy initiatives and working to bring down their emissions intensity per barrel and eventually their absolute emissions by, you know, 2030-ish, something like that. So CAP was cut out of that, deliberately cut out of that. All the other oil, oil sands companies, all the other, oil, you know, the little oil and gas, all were cut out of those conversations. So imagine what CAP and those other companies felt when these big, the big guys basically worked with the government, worked with the environmentalists, the, you know, the hated environmentalists, and then with the hated NDP to bring in a bunch of policies, climate policies, that the little guys and the other, and CAP hated. Imagine how that went over. It was like a lead balloon. And what it led to after that November 22nd, you know, announcement of climate leadership plan, where all the CEOs are on, 
on the uh, on the uh, stage with Notley is basically a civil war within the Alberta oil patch, and and the behind the scenes in the boardrooms and you know over scotch and the petroleum club, the little guys beat up on the other five CEOs to the point where the five CEOs just says you know fuck it I, I'm done with this I you know I'm 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 here to run an oil company not to in, engage in in politics like this and they and they and they were defeated by the small producers, the Brett Wilsons of the world, who already controlled CAP and, and, and the other uh, smaller uh, you know, industry associations. And then after they won in 2017, 2018, they threw their support behind Jason Kenney and the UCP. So it, it seems to me that uh, the like junior and intermediate oil companies hold a lot of sway in cap. Would, would and that that's be accurate? Why they hold a lot of sway in cap? Right. They won that. They won that battle. They won control over cap. And as I should point out, a lot of the oil sand CEO, all of them, all of them retired or or left their respective companies, and the people that replaced them were more amenable or. Uh, to that kind of small producer, you know, hardcore right wing, you know, boosterism kind of kind of uh, narrative in the politics and the and the UCP politics. And so, you know, it was that alliance of the 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 ascendant leader political leadership within the industry allied with Kenny and the UCP, and that's how you got the 2019 campaign. And, and the energy narrative and, and all the money that flowed into the UCP and all of the support that the, the industry threw behind Jason Kenney. So and, and when, when you say, when we talk about junior and intermediate um, producers, I think one may have a vision of like a small business. Um, and it seems to me that that's not the case, right? Brett Wilson is like a junior energy exec. I mean, you know, there's well, a lot of junior doesn't mean like garage, like yeah. worked. It doesn't mean it's like done in someone's backyard. That's for sure. But right. it does kind of give that impression. Right. Let's so, talk about those definitions. So a junior yeah. oil and gas company uh, produces less than 10,000 barrel of oil equivalent uh, a day. And an intermediate produces 10,000 to 100,000. And a senior produces over 100,000. So there are 14. Uh, there are, um, I think there's... 14 seniors and uh, there were as of late in 2019 there were 89 juniors you need to understand that in 2016 I think it was 2016 according to the Alberta Securities Commission there were 210 junior companies and prior to 2016 there were hundreds of, of junior companies so between 2016 and 2019 they, they, basically the province lost 121 junior oil companies. Either they were absorbed and so, or they went bankrupt. The junior, the junior sector, uh, and here's another little tidbit of fact for you. In 20, I think it was 2018, raised absolutely zero public capital. Zero. The year be, in 2016, they had raised billions. And in 2018, they raised zero. And I think 2019 was a billion dollars. Like literally capital dried up. Right. And, and the juniors couldn't get access to capital. Nobody would lend them money. They're basically hanging on by a thread. And 
if COVID, if the pandemic doesn't kill them, uh, they will die shortly. Most of them will, will go belly up. There, there is one entity I can think of that will lend them money, though. Um, and that is, of course, AIMCO. <laughs> oh, you cynical, cynical bugger, you. You don't think that Jason Kenney and the UCP government gave a transfer teachers' uh, pensions over to AIMCO so they could prop up a bunch of junior no. oil and gas companies. No, they love teachers. Couldn't get capital anyplace else. You don't think that, do you, Jeremy? Nope. No, Jeremy, no. It, we're very sold on the idea that this was about teachers getting a better retirement. Yeah, well, the Qataris won't let me um, say <laughs> otherwise, but... Um, well, yeah, but let's talk about that a bit, because obviously, um, you know, particularly since 2014, 2015, the oil and gas industry, particularly in this province, because it, you, our oil is so energy intensive to get out of the ground, has been in a bit of a tailspin. And I think, I think a major point of disagreement between us maybe what to do about that. Um, so Markham, tell us, what, what's the solution to this crisis in the patch? Jeremy, I wrote a thing called the, the Energy Declaration and it came out of, remember the Buffalo Declaration, that horrible, ha inaccurate? Yeah, our, uh, our MP signed it, uh, but clearly I, didn't read it. I think it was the Bison Declaration, you guys. So anyway, I, I, I began writing a, re, a rejoinder to it, which I called the Energy Declaration, but it very quickly morphed into um, what I thought the uh, Canadian energy future should look like. And there are 12 principles, and I can't give you all 12 off the top of my head, but it were things like have to accept the fact that the global energy trend system is changing. We have to embrace the climate science. We have to embrace the energy transition. We have to uh, recognize the fact that the that this is a time of it's an existential crisis for the oil and gas industry in Canada, particularly Alberta. Uh, on and on and on. There's 12 principles, and then I laid out a bunch of narrative to to uh, explain and basically prove out the, the the need for the principles. But so, and then I wrote a, a hydrocarbon vision uh, that was uh, an appendix to the the energy declaration. And I had a, the big idea in the, in the hydrocarbon vision is that the oil sands, which produces 80% of Alberta's oil, begin now making the transition from producing bitumen for fuel to producing bitumen for materials or for alternate fuels. So instead of sending it off to a refinery where you make the least valuable product you could, gasoline and diesel, well, maybe jet fuel as well. You turn it into carbon fiber with a value of four times or three or four times what it would be otherwise, and you don't burn it. It's non-combustion. I call it the post-combustion future. And that is sort of my vision for where Alberta needs to go over the next 30 years. It's not going to happen tomorrow. And lo and behold, on June 1st, uh, Mark Little, who is the CEO of Suncor, and Laura Kilcrease, who is the CEO of Alberta Innovates, the Alberta provincial agency responsible for technological innovation, co-wrote an op-ed in the Corporate Knights magazine in which they acknowledge that change is coming a lot quicker than the industry thought, and they talked about transitioning and pivoting 
to carbon fiber and materials production. So, now, why, wouldn't, why didn't they do that before? Explain to me why, I mean, obviously, like, if I see, like, the entire house engulfed in flames, I'm going to fucking throw a hose on it. But explain to me why they, what kept them from putting the stove fire out with these kinds of transitions when they, you know, had the money to do it themselves and had the production. Why didn't they do it before? Well, first of all, you need to understand that the uh, Alberta uh, industry is horrible. And I mean, horrible to the nth degree at communicating what they're actually doing. They, over the last... Is that because they're full of shit? Uh, no, it's not. Okay. It, well, it's, it's partly. No, let, in, de, in defense of these companies, they recognize climate change and, and acknowledge the climate science as far back as 2008. They've been working hard and they've been spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on developing new technologies to decarbonize, basically lower the carbon intensity of their product. They've been working, they've been supporting work like Alberta Innovates on coming up with alternative uses for, for their product to make things like carbon fiber, to turn it into, uh, to, to make hydrogen uh, from oil and gas, uh, blue hydrogen. Uh, so, uh, you know, which has essentially very, very low uh, emissions. Uh, all of those kinds of things. They've been working at this, but they never talk, to, talk about it. They never talk to Albertans about it. They just, you know, Go away and do it off in the in the background, and then wonder why nobody knows what they're actually what they're actually oh, doing. Why why do they do this sort of behind closed doors? Like why do you think that is? I, I'm fond of saying, Jeremy, <clears throat> that if you're going to have big oil and gas companies, do not let engineers, accountants, or lawyers run them. In particular, do not let that group of professionals run the communication strategies. Because they don't want you to know. They don't want to talk right. about stuff. They want to. They want to do it within the first of all within their company, and then within their industry. And they don't care that you know. And the only time they care is when politics gets you know it, you know gets too hot. The house is on fire, and they have and they think that they need to grab the fire hose and you know. It's a horrible metaphor, but you know then they need to spray some some water on the flames by talking to and telling what they're doing to get political support. But th the industry deserves more support than it, it gets in quarters like, you know, this podcast. But on the other hand, also deserves a lot of criticism because it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not pivoting as fast as it needs to. It's not, it claims that it's a great environmental manager, yet we have 1.3 trillion liters of, of, uh, of uh, oil sands tailings in 37 yeah. ponds up in Northern Alberta. We've got, you know, high methane emissions. We have all of these problems. And instead, we, we, we in, in, engage in these silly, you know, uh, political debates like you see with Brett Wilson on Twitter that is just a distraction from the real questions and the real issues that, that Alberta needs to address. And, and part of it is because the guys that actually control the political culture, like Kenny, and Sonia Savage, the minister, energy minister, and Wilson, and all that crew uh, really uh, do not believe or have not believed up till lately that we were actually in a structural change to their industry. They thought it was just another cycle, right? Boom and bust. We went through, a, we had a boom to 2014, then we had a bust, 
Then we were getting coming back and having a, a bit of the start of a boom and the, and Rachel Notley killed it. So if we just got rid of Rachel Notley and put in the right policies, we would have the boom that Alberta deserves. That's Obviously, that's how it works. And, and one of the reasons I'm unpopular with guys like Wilson is I keep saying, no, 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 this is not cyclical. This is structural. Technology is changing the foundation of the energy system, the global energy system. We are at, we are 20 years into an energy transition and we are in the, we are, we are transitioning from fossil fuels to electricity generated by renewable, uh, by renewables, primarily wind and solar. And eventually it will begin to displace the oil and gas that Alberta relies on. And we have to begin to think about that today and, and begin to pivot so that by 2050, there still is an Alberta industry that is, viable how, how do we facilitate that transition because some um people would say that we should nationalize the oil and gas industry and wind it down and well look, i know i i'm happy to answer that um one of the reasons why i supported the industry after 2015 was because of rachel notley's climate leadership plan and it's it's not because i, I Contrary to the many accusations I get from Mr. Wilson uh, and others like him, it's not because I'm an NDP or a liberal partisan. It's because I would interview literally dozens of energy economists and they would say, not least climate leadership plan and her related energy policies are good policies, well-designed, and they're the right policies at the right time. This is what we need to, where we need to go. They weren't perfect and they weren't maybe enough for some on, you know, for Zipporah Berman, but they were a good start and they did, and they deserve to be supported. And that's why, uh, based on expert interviews and opinion, I, Energy Media editorially did support them and, and editorially opposed Mr. Kenny and the UCP, whose policy was to tear most of that stuff apart. Okay, so the Energy Declaration, it is about basically embracing the transition, right? Like it's about embracing the reality of this need to get off of burning fossil fuels. And what you're saying is essentially it's putting the focus of what's what this industry has left, whether that's 20 years, 30 years, or 50 years, or what have you, focusing this on instead of burning fossil fuels, turning fossil fuels into materials, uh, trying and these kinds of things, correct? Like that's what the energy declaration is, is this sort of vow to focus on that. It, it is, but my intent, because I'm not a, an economist, I'm not an, an expert in these things, was to, was to write the narrative. That's something I do know a lot about, energy narratives, and you know, as a virtue, as a consequence of what I do for a living. And I wanted, Part of what, why Rachel Notley failed is because Rachel Notley could never connect the dots and come up with a good narrative to explain why we should support, why Albertans should, should support. Oh, her that's plan. the most tired, like you're bringing on, don't bring that Max Fawcett nonsense onto my show. <laughs> <laughs> there is no way that she was like, and we are not like uh, blanket supporters of the NDP. She, there is not a fucking narrative out there that Rachel Notley was going to come up with that could communicate to these people that her policies energy-wise were good. And to suggest that, her, that she had failed at communicating that is like 
I mean, there are some criticisms, criticisms of Notley that are absolutely justifiable, and some of them aren't even strong enough. But this one is like boggles my mind that you two think this. Sorry, I love you, but you and Max, you and Max are not accurate on this. On uh, the contrary, and I will give you the evidence of my <laughs> argument, as I always do. So when I wrote my book, The New Alberta Advantage, Technology, Policy, and the Future of the Oil Sands, uh, Premier Notley very kindly gave me 30 minutes to interview. And, and in addition to that, by the way, I had many interviews with her energy minister, Martin McQuaid Boyd, and her environment minister, Shannon Phillips. So I know where I speak on this, gentlemen. And I, the first two questions that I asked Ms. Notley were designed for her to give me the narrative. Explain to me uh, why, connect the dots on all your policy, give me the big reason, the, you know, the narrative for why your policies are what's needed now in Alberta uh, has to have them. And she couldn't do it. She could not do it. And what do you mean she couldn't do it? Did she literally look at you in the face and go, I don't have an answer? Or did she answer your question and you didn't like the answer? I, she answered and what she wanted to talk about was hospitals and social programs and that sort of thing. You know, how we, how we support. Right. She played Paul. She, she, did a she did a politician on you. She pivoted to her talking points. That's right. Yeah, she pivoted to her strengths. Right. I mean, you yeah. know, social. And that's one of the reasons why Marg McQuaid point, like, you know, Marg, Marg is a lovely person and really actually considering she had no experience in energy, did a pretty good job. Uh, but she was, uh, as she will tell you, she is not the salesperson for the Notley or wasn't a good salesperson for the Notley uh, energy policies. And as a consequence, so the premier was not, a, was not, didn't have a good narrative. Her energy minister didn't have a narrative. Shannon Phillips of the three was the best salesperson for those policies, but she's Shannon. Okay, she, had, she had other stuff going on and, and she wasn't able to, to carry the day on this. What, what Kenny had was a brilliant narrative for fundamentally flawed policies. His policies sucked. I said it from the very, from the beginning in 2018 when he started outlining his policies. I said it all through the, the Alberta election in 2019 and I've said it consistently since. His policies suck. But he put together a narrative, a sales job that Albertans bought. They wanted to buy it, Markham. That's the difference here. Like, I agree with you that there could have been a better narrative from the NDP. Like we, I totally agree that like, if you want to say that they didn't do a good, a good enough job of selling what they were doing, I can buy that. What I don't buy is that there was a narrative that would have worked. There wasn't, there was no sales job that they could have done that would have worked in Alberta and Albertans fucking wanted Jason Kenny's garbage sales job to work. Like, yes, it's like brilliant in its simplicity, but it is ridiculous. His entire, fo like their entire mantra about the energy and the oil and gas industry is, is a joke. And it's just simple is all it is, is it's easy to rah-rah behind because it's just simple. Well, and you hey, see that- We're gonna make everything better because our existence will make oil flow the end. Well, 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 you see that with right-wing demagogues all over the world, right? That sticking to the simplistic message 
works, right? Like Boris Johnson, like get totally. Brexit done or make America great again. Like it resonates. Jobs economy pipeline. Jobs yeah. economy pipeline. Jobs economy pipeline. And yeah, that's what's- Scott, let me, let me address it. We're talking hypotheticals here, right? I mean, could, would things have gone differently if she, if not, we had had a narrative that accurately reflected her policies? No. It's a hypothetical. There's no way, there's no way that we can answer that definitively. So, I mean, if I, if I hypothetically fall out of an airplane, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. Scott, be quiet for a minute. What I want to say is it's perfectly defensible argument to argue that there is nothing that Notley could have done. She could have had a brilliant narrative that explained her policies better than Kenny and not change the, the results by one percentage point in the popular vote. That is a defensible argument. I, I agree with you. It's not, that's not my argument, though. Or arguing against that is not my argument. What I'm arguing is simply that she didn't have a narrative and, and didn't do a good job selling her policy at any point in her government. Let's leave it at that. Otherwise, we'll just... No, you're right. I, you're right. I, I think what Scott's getting at is that perhaps there's something deeper than just a narrative, right? I mean, perhaps the policies themselves sought to seek a balance that's that, a good point. That, that, is uns can... that is unsustainable in the long term with the looming climate crisis. That's a good point that we could do another show about for sure, Jeremy. Really, that's a good and point. Let me, let, me, let me tie that up in a bow. But I just want to hear what Markham has to say about that. Yeah, me too. Tie that up in a bow for you. This gets back to my whole argument around it's structural, not cyclical. Because when structural change happens in societies and economies, people get... Well, look what happened. Well, look what what Trump tapped, tapped into in 2016, right? Out in the Rust Belt and places like that, where people had lost their job and they, you know, they they didn't understand what was going on, but but they were full of angst and, and some and he tapped into that. And in a way, Alberta was very similar. There's this big structural change happening, and you know the jobs are being lost and businesses are going bankrupt, and and it, you know it's. Uh, it, it's not the Alberta that everybody knew, and so there has to. We don't know why. We but, so there has to be a scapegoat. We have to scapegoat somebody, and so we scapegoated Rachel Notley because she was in government at, at the time. But it's that if you were looking for a deeper cause, and I think that's a very astute of you, and I'm, I'm not surprised that you did it in, instead of uh, Scott. But if you're looking, <laughs> if you're looking for the deeper cause, it's the tensions created by the structural changes in global markets and global in the global energy system. That's Just, fundamentally, you, a, a, what's that? It's capitalism, Markham, say it. Well, do it. Since, we, since we have a capitalist system, I, of course it's capitalism. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> I can't, I can't if, you want to, if you want to say that, that it's capitalism and we need to have some other system to, to uh, deal with these tensions other than capitalism. Well, that's a whole nother, sh like Scott said, that's a whole nother show. Now we do have to wrap up here, but I want to kind of sort of just tie this little bit about the declaration up because let's just say like, this is something that we can all sign, for example, like you, I can sign the energy declaration. So let's just say the public, we all buy in hypothetically, everybody is like, yeah, this is amazing everybody signs this energy de declaration. Like, what does that mean? Like, I can't 
I can't make this transition happen. So is this for the public to get behind or is this for oil companies to get behind? And if oil, if everybody says, yes, we need to do this, who's paying for this transition? Well, let me address the first part of that question. And that is, it's for the public. It's not for the oil companies. Uh, and what I, what I hope to do with the energy declaration is if we can get enough people signed on and, and, and give this thing enough public uh, profile and exposure is that we change the way we think and talk about energy in Alberta, in Canada, actually. We need to, first of all, you know, like, let me illustrate this. So uh, some of the more progressive folks in the oil and gas industry were talking to me, you know, around the beginning of the pandemic. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I would argue that we need a new narrative. And they would say, no, 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 no. Give us a plan. Give us a plan. Well, no, we need to change the way we think and talk about energy, recognize some of these big changes that are happening and the tensions that we're dealing with. Then we come up with a plan to fix the problems that we've identified and we're talking about. So for me, as a journalist, I, I think that thinking and talking about energy comes before whatever plans and strategies we're going to put in place. We need to wrap our heads around, and Alberta is, is woefully, woefully provincial, insular, and inward-looking, and has not, most people have still not got their heads around the fact that we're in an energy transition. I mean, and it, when, when did Jen, Jason Kenney actually have the words escape his lips? A few months ago, six months ago, eight months ago, yeah. something like that? Yeah. And, you, and you, still, you still won't get oil and gas leaders to, to admit that, many of them. So we need to change the way we think and talk about energy. Then we can talk about strategies and tactics and where we're, you know, how, what policies we need and those sorts of things. Green New Deal. Pardon me? That was very, that was loud. He said Green New Deal, but you couldn't hear because he, the, he was given it the old. Yeah, the Fidel the desk, Castro. He's given it the desk pound, which doesn't work on our, on our mics, I guess, so well. But I'm with you, Jeremy. No, yeah, and that's obviously a whole other can of now we're gonna, we can now, look in another time. But. Now, we're going to wrap up here today. I think we're going to have to have Mark come on again just because I like yelling back and forth with him, but also because we have so many other things that we could talk about and want to talk about, and, we, and, and uh, there's so much um, to discuss when it involves Alberta and its energy industry right now and the future of it. Um, the fact of the matter is, is the future is kind of here. Uh, the, the problems that the industry is facing are at its doorstep and it's either going to die kicking and screaming or it's going to make a transition to uh, better ways of doing things. Um, Markham, you're dedicated to that kind of thing through truth telling and through really honest journalism. And as much as I love getting into it with you and never saying anything nice about you, you do amazing work. We really respect what you do. Um, even when you send me columns that I don't entirely agree with, I try to share them because you do have a lot of really good things to say. And if there was anyone that could talk to me about this stuff where I will be like, all right, he has a good point. It's you. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, it didn't even get heated with Jeremy. It got more heated with me, which is boring, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, just, it's, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure to have you. You didn't even call me a commie bastard. Very disappointing. 
Yeah. Um, but no, Markham, uh, it was great having you on. I thought it was a very enlightening discussion. And I again, I like Scott, I don't agree with you all the time, but I greatly admire your passion for energy and how much you love talking about it. Um, because you, you, you know, you, you have a lot to offer in terms of, you know, information you, on. You're more of an expert than you ever admit. And, and I also, um, uh, um, very much respect your ability to have these discussions with people you don't necessarily agree with and to always be very, uh, nice and generous with your, um, uh, assumption of other people's motives yeah i mean you you, you had a, you had breakfast coffee with derek fildebrand so i mean you're pretty uh you're pretty oh, willing yeah. to go both I, directions I, I need to watch that i still haven't so it was it was interesting but anyways mark and we'll let you have the last word here gentlemen thank you very much for this i really appreciate it and i think that the uh i appreciate the opportunity to reach out to your audience and to explain some of these ideas that are complex and, and difficult to have a discussion around. I mean, it's, it, as you say, it's always easier to have, you know, a simple narrative, you know, pipelines, economy, jobs, but that doesn't get us to where we need to go. And we need to have a little more intelligent and thoughtful conversation. And I appreciate the fact that you guys were willing to have that part of that conversation today and, and thank you very much for the kind things you've said. If you look at my Twitter profile, I promise to be accurate and truthful, full stop. That's the best I can do. Absolutely. Well, and listen, we will, in the show notes, we're going to throw up some links to Markham's work. Uh, we'll put his Twitter handle in there as well. So make sure you guys uh, follow him and keep up to date with these, what he's doing, no matter where you sit on where opinion wise on where you think this transition should go. He is the place where you want to be to get the truth and to hear from real experts on both sides of the fence. So do that uh, before I let you guys go. Um, as always, we want to thank our patrons who go above and beyond anything we could expect from our patrons. Uh, uh, Chris Sturwald and Big Red Machine, you guys are uh, amazing. We love having you guys aboard. Uh, we're truly humbled by the support that you and the rest of our patrons provide for us. We just hope that you guys like what we're doing. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to have Markham on again, um, and we'll, there'll be lots to talk about. So anyways, thanks, you guys. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Adios.